0: Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. This is Talk the Talk. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined by Congressman Jim McGovern. Thank you so much, Congressman, for being with us. I understand you're on your way, to, well, back out to this part of the district. Tell us what you're doing today out here.
1: Well, I'm, I'm on my way out to an event in Hasley uh, to celebrate His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's 88th birth anniversary, uh, which I'm looking forward to. We have a very vibrant uh, Tibetan community uh, in Western Mass. But, uh, you know, I was one of the, 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 the last, uh, well, I was the last official congressional delegation led by uh, Nancy Pelosi a few years back to actually be led into Tibet. Um, and now the Chinese government has blocked everybody uh, from going in there. And uh, and their repression against the Tibetan people is horrific. I also, a few years back, uh, went to Dharamsala, India, and actually met with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and had an incredible meeting. And so I, I am you know, looking forward to this event uh, with uh, members of the community to celebrate a man of peace, love, and justice. And, uh, boy, do we need it now.
0: Mm. Amen to that. Uh, Congressman McGovern, I'd like to turn to some political matters, if I might. Uh, uh, Mr. Kennedy is getting a lot of publicity, most of it unwarranted as far as I can tell since he's... Uh, Ranking about nine percent in the polls, but he is uh, he is mounting a challenge in the Democratic primary for president to President Biden. I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, Kennedy's challenge.
1: Well, first of all, I have an enormous respect for the Kennedy family. I was good friends with uh, Senator Ted Kennedy. I was an admirer of Robert Kennedy and, and President Kennedy, and Joe Kennedy is my friend, and I you know I work with Kerry Kennedy on. Human rights issues. Unfortunately, uh, RFK Jr. You know, I think would be better suited to run in the Republican primary. He's an anti-vaxer. He embraces all these conspiracy theories, and you know, I, I think his views are very dangerous. And quite frankly, don't reflect the, the principles of the Democratic Party. I I don't know whose principles they reflect. Uh, but uh, look, uh, you know, everybody has a right to run, and um, you know, uh, and my hope is at the end of the day. Uh, Democratic uh, primary voters will send a clear message that we're not into conspiracy theories. If you want conspiracy theories, go vote for Trump. But that's not what we're about. We're about we respect science. We're fact-based. We believe in civil rights. We believe in justice, fairness, equality, and decency. Um, And unfortunately, RFK Jr. does not seem to share those values.
0: Congressman McGovern, there is this weirdness of what is going to happen in the New Hampshire Democratic presidential primary, because, as I understand it, President Biden may not be on the ballot there?
1: Yeah, right. I mean, the bottom line is the president has embraced this kind of shakeup in the primary system where South Carolina would be the first primary. Uh, but but in, the, uh, in the New Hampshire, uh, I guess it, 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 it's by law that they, have to, that they have deemed that they have to be the first. So I don't know how all this works, so whether Biden files or not or, or whatever, um, but it sounds like uh, this is a place that, that could actually benefit uh, any opponent of, of Biden in the primary because they will be on the ballot and he may not be. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 at the end of the day, I, I, I don't think it, in, in the, it, it amounts to very much of anything maybe a slight embarrassment to the president, but, you know, I mean, he's, this is what he has decided to do. And, and we just have to, you know, let it, let the process play itself out.
0: Although as we know, there can be, and there can be significant momentum coming out of New Hampshire uh, because there have been presidential campaigns launched based on the results in New Hampshire. And, the last thing in the world I would want to see is Kennedy getting momentum for these crazy anti-vaxxer, anti-science ideas and right-wing Republican ideas that he's promoting. But it could happen, sadly.
1: Yeah, right. But I, at the end of the day, I, I have confidence in the intellect and in the rationality of Democratic primary voters. I mean, I think people will vote on issues, will vote on things that matter to them. and. You know, I, I I don't see this groundswell of support amongst Democratic primary voters for a candidate, you know, who who doesn't believe in science, who believes in conspiracy theories, who has some kind of wacky ideas um, on a whole range of issues that, quite frankly, run contrary to things that that we believe. And so, if, if he does better than expected in New Hampshire because of this kind of quirk. Uh, quirky system that we have that might not have the president actually on the ballot. I, I, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, people will take note, but at the end of the day, that's the, there's a long process uh, to play out. And, um, and I think, you know, my expectation is that president Biden will uh, win the democratic nomination overwhelmingly. I mean, this is not a a battle like between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders where You know, uh, where we're talking about ideas that are all consistent within kind of the Democratic philosophy. I mean, what RFK Jr. is talking about are things that Donald Trump talks about. And I I just don't see where the, you know, where support would be for him in the long term in a Democratic primary process.
0: Congressman McGovern, while we're on this topic of the president and, and the primaries and the upcoming election... I would appreciate your explaining to us what is happening or not happening in the House of Representatives with regard to the Republican push to impeach the president. Where does that stand?
1: Well, they they voted to send it to committee, and so uh, two committees are going to, Judiciary and Homeland Security, are going to hold hearings, I guess, and and make a decision on, on what to do. But look, it uh, you know, impeachment is. Is reserved uh, to use for a president who commits high crimes, is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. I don't, anyway, they're upset with Biden because they don't like his immigration policy. Well, that's a policy disagreement. And the way you deal with that um, is you try to come up with alternative policies in our Congress or you try to defeat him in the next election. Uh, But uh, but they're not only talking about impeaching Biden. You know, they now want to impeach uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general. They want to uh, impeach uh, Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security. So they want to impeach everybody. And then they want to introduce uh, legislation to expunge Donald Trump's two impeachments, which I don't think you can do that, but whatever. They may go through the motions
0: I, I, well, but Congressman, if they if they can if they can eliminate uh, slavery and racism from American history, why can't they erase the Donald Trump's impeachment?
2: And if they can censure uh, Adam Schiff for doing his job,
1: right. Right. why not? But, but I mean, but it, but it's become a, no, they can do it. But I mean, in terms of what does it mean in terms of history? It doesn't mean anything. It means maybe in their own minds they can, you know, they can say, oh we, the, the impeachments never happened. They happened, uh, and they're well documented, and there's a strong basis for those impeachments. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, they, they turn the censure process into a joke. It ends up helping Adam Schiff in the long run, probably in his Senate race, because people saw through what it was. It was not serious. It was not based on fact. It's a joke. They've turned uh, the, 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 the Republican Party in the House of Representatives has become a joke, plain and simple. Uh, and I and I and I, I I don't see where the political benefit is for them in terms of. You know, general elections. There is political benefit for them in these primaries, where you know a a sliver uh, of the the Republican uh, Party actually shows up. But it's 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 like they have they're embarrassing themselves uh, when they do this stuff, and we have to call them out. They're wasting time on stupid stuff like that when we have real problems. They may not even be able to pass appropriation bills to keep the government running because they can't even get all of their members to agree, uh, you know, on anything. Uh, I mean, they, they, they have put forward spending bills that have draconian cuts, cuts in WIC, cuts in environmental protection, cuts in meals on wheels. They're great down the list. And, you know, uh, it, I, I just, I, I, I think when people realize what they are standing for, uh, I think they, they will pay a heavy price uh, in the midterms. That's that's my, my belief. It's, it's also, it's my hope as well.
0: Congressman McGovern, while we're on this topic of appropriations <clears throat> and uh, as well as the dysfunction of the United States Congress and the House of Representatives, I would be interested in an update from you on what this House can accomplish. It seems to me, given the uh, animosity, the odds of substantive uh, Legislation being passed that has any chance in the Senate or with the president is zero. But appropriations have to be passed or we're faced with another government shutdown. Is that a real possibility again?
1: It's a, yeah, it is a real possibility. and It's a dangerous possibility. Look, I mean, the extreme right wing is dictating to the right wing you know, what the agenda should be. Uh, but it's so extreme that even for some Republicans, it's like I, I don't ask you to vote for that stuff. Uh, And, you know, and if the extreme right wing gets its way, uh, you know, one is I don't know if they can pass these bills in the House. And then secondly, if they did, there's no way in the Senate they would take up these bills. And here's the problem. Kevin McCarthy basically gave away everything to become speaker. Any one Republican can call for his expulsion and he can only lose five people. That's it. And so, you know, he is just kind of dangling there. At the mercy of the most extreme elements of the Republican conference, um, and it's really quite frustrating for those of us who want to get things done. Uh, but he's afraid; he doesn't know what to do. Uh, so if he, you know, he, he could easily work with Democrats and come up with a compromise uh, set of appropriation bills, send them over to the Senate, it probably would pass, and get them to the president for his signature. But if he does that, he risks. You know, being having one of his you know Freedom Caucus members, you know, move for his expulsion, and I don't you know, and I don't think you know, I, I think there are more than five Republicans. I think there, there's probably ten or twenty that would easily vote to expel him. And then what? We don't we don't know. Uh, but if he wants to work with Democrats, you know, then 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 he needs to. It, 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 then there needs to be some compromise. There needs to be some give and take. And up to this point, he is shown a total unwillingness to engage so it, whatever the, the extreme right wing wants that's what he does
0: so congressman mcgovern uh, when does this come to a head wh- wh- well, we're, we're looking at this precipice of the government shutting down again because it doesn't have any so money when 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 will this crisis so, be upon us
1: so that'll be in the fall but you'll have a, an indication uh, in the coming weeks uh whether or not that's what's likely to happen because we take up these appropriation bills individually. and it may be that they don't take them up. Uh, and if that's the case, you know that tells you that he's in trouble. Uh, and that tells you the country's in trouble. Look, we need to keep the government running for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, people rely on government services uh, for a whole range of things. Uh, and the idea that uh, we're going to shut it down because we have a House of Representatives where Republicans are not even need to compromise with Republicans, is just, is really sad. But look at, they have brought this, this on themselves. And I said this on the floor a couple of weeks ago. They have turned the Republican party into a joke. This is not a functioning political party anymore. It is a party about conspiracy theories. It is a party dedicated to vengeance and just, you know, the most extreme, uh, you know, policy you can imagine. This is a party being run by Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Paul Gosar, and, again, and, and, and those who share their views. And Kevin McCarthy ought to have a spine for the good of the country and say, look it, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to try to get good bills passed, and I'm going to work with Democrats to get that done. And if I lose my speakership, so be it. But it's not worth being speaker if all you're doing is overseeing chaos, and and a bunch of nothing. And that's what's happening
2: right now. Representative, uh, this is Buzz, and I just want to say when you talk to the Dalai Lama today, uh, it's going to be an impressive meeting because um, the two of you have boundless tolerance that I I wish I had for the kind of mishigas that you put up with um, all the time in Congress. I am just a huge admirer of your patience and balance.
1: Well... Although my wife says my filter is going <laughs> on the house floor, she's like she's like that, that makes me like. Can you say those things on the house floor? Look, you know, look at at the end of the day, you know, Congress's job is to help people, uh, and we and we can have different opinions on how we help people, but we're, we're, this is a period where you know, the people who are controlling the house are not interested in governing; uh, they're just interested in. Twitter followers and blowing things up, and you know, at the end, you, know it, you know, one one of the things that I, I remind people is that when they get their way, it's still not enough. They vote against the bill anyway. So, you know, this is a this is a, a a pivotal moment for Kevin McCarthy. He either wants to be speaker or he doesn't, and we'll see how it happens. But look, we we have a lot of challenges. Uh, we got we got to deal with them. I will just say one other thing. You know, we just celebrated Independence Day. You know, you know, I was I, I marched in the par- a parade in Rutland and it was on a rainy, rainy day. A lot of people showed up. It was actually very, very, very nice. But I said to you know, somebody who asked me, you know, what are you thinking on this day? I said, we're still standing. Notwithstanding all of this, and notwithstanding the attack on our democracy on January 6, it's still intact, and we got to fight to keep it intact. Uh, you, you know, for not only you know, for the good of our country, Uh, but, you know, in order to help people. So that's where, you know, that's where my focus is. And, you know, we go back into session next week and, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, I'm ready for the fight and uh, I love this country and going to do what I can to,
0: We're going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern. Thanks so much for your time every month, Congressman. We really appreciate it.
1: All right, Bill and Buzz, all the best. Be safe. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, this is your life. You've got no hope. You've got no plan.
3: But the billionaire,
4: yeah, he's your
3: man. Because
5: Trump is on your side.
3: Yeah.
6: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
7: It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors
6: where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts.
7: A house is a very, very, very fine house. A house is a very, very, very fine house.
5: You want to feel important.
8: You wanna be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things.
5: You want to feel like you belong. We know, we felt that way too.
8: And that's why we did something about it.
5: We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers.
8: We are normal people just like you, but our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more.
5: When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it.
8: We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors.
5: From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey.
8: The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania.
5: To the dense forests of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, DC. We are here for our hometowns.
8: And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more.
0: Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this
4: station.
9: Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com.
6: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: I was so pleased to see in the Daily Hampshire Gazette this morning an ad for Circus Smirkus, which will be performing this weekend. I'm so excited. We have with us in the studio Josh Wachtel, who is a core staff member at North Star and joining us. On Skype, uh, Josh Shack, who is the interim co-executive director of Circus Smirkus, coming to the Valley. It's so exciting. I haven't seen the uh, act, I haven't seen this in some years, but I loved it so much the times I have. So Circus Smirkus coming to the Valley. Let me start with Josh Wachtel, who is from North Star. This is a benefit, after all. Tell us a minute, if you would, about North Star and what is coming to the Benefit North Star,
10: please. Okay, well, thank you. Um, North Star is self directed learning for teens. We provide an alternative to school for any kid in the Valley who wants to start living their life outside of school um, through a home schooling process. Um, we provide uh, classes, advising, one on ones, a center in Sunderland where kids can come and socialize and learn. And um, it's great to be connected with Circus Smircus because we do all the legwork for them uh, as a nonprofit and provide a place and uh, volunteers for the shows and promotion. And uh, it it just feels like really great synergy because they're working with teens who are doing really awesome things. And uh, that helps to benefit our program here in the Valley.
0: Okay, so when is the performance of Circus Smircus and where
10: is it? July 8th and 9th, this Saturday and Sunday. 1 and 6 on Saturday, 11 and 4 on Sunday. It's at the three-county fairgrounds. Okay, and we can get tickets where? Uh, online, uh, smirkus.org, or call 877 smirkus eight seven 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 six four seven five eight seven. Okay,
0: and online, again, probably the easiest
10: way for people smirkus, to Smirkus, S-M-I-R-K-U-S dot O-R-G. So, Josh
0: Shack. Circus Smircus, for those of our listeners who don't know what it is, who somehow have not been to a performance yet, and who absolutely have to go this weekend, in my judgment, what is Circus Smircus?
11: So, Circus Smircus is uh, an award winning traveling youth circus. Um, It is, for all intents and purposes, a professional quality uh, circus in a big top tent that travels all around New England um, during the summer, but the performers are ages 10 to 18. So you'll see acrobats and clowns and jugglers and aerialists and all kinds of fun and excitement, very high skill level. Um, and it is a, uh, a theatrical production with a new theme each year and new acts. And we're excited to be back in Northampton for the first time since 2019.
0: Okay. So for those who haven't seen it, what kind of acts? I mean, I take it we don't have lions and tigers anymore, and Circus Smircus has never had that, but it has these incredible uh, gymnastics and aerial sort of stuff. So describe a little bit of that. What will people see? Yeah,
11: yeah. so you will see um, it, you will see an 11-year-old who juggles six balls. Um, you'll see another juggler who juggles seven rings. Um, you'll see contortionists. You'll see uh, performers flying through the air. You'll see uh, very funny acrobats, uh, sorry, funny clowns and astounding acrobats. Um, and <laughs> it's really important to get those ad-
0: adjectives in the right order. Okay, sorry.
11: <laughs> yes, I, I, <laughs> that was my little, I used to be a clown myself. Well, I still am, and sometimes I club up a little bit, but we do it with grace. Um, what, is, uh, what is
2: the theme so- of this year's? performance.
11: Yeah, so this year's show is an adaptation of the Shakespeare comedy A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's called A Midsummer Night's Circus. If you're familiar with the story, you'll get little Easter eggs and little kind of icing on the cake, but even if you're not familiar with um, the Shakespeare play, you will enjoy it and you'll see the story mostly told through pantomime. There is some dialogue in the show this year, but it's mostly acted out and again it's, this, it's exciting uh, circus facts for all ages. Um, and it's a really great show.
0: And it's like a real old-time
11: circus in a big tent, right? Absolutely, yes. Um, it is. Circus Marcus is kind of a combination of a contemporary circus and a very traditional circus. So it's a one-ring-tented um, circus, as you might have seen um, in Europe you know, centuries ago. But um, it's modern um, original score and lighting, and it's a full theatrical production with traditional circus acts and uh really talented uh kids and teenagers performing.
0: Yeah, it sounds amazing. Are you on tour? Circus Merkus on tour and you're coming to Three County Fairgrounds in Northampton this weekend and then on to something else?
11: Yes, we just opened last weekend um at our headquarters in Vermont. Um so far our and our tour just opened, but of our first seven performances have been sold out and we always sell uh really full tents in Northampton. So don't delay, get your tickets um, this weekend in Northampton. And then you can see the full schedule at our website, smirkus.org. And we will be traveling um, through mid August all around New England.
2: People shouldn't delay. I just want to say that there's no more wholesome activity. Every time I've seen Circus Smircus, it's just, it celebrates youth. It it celebrates fun. It celebrates humor and, and it celebrates our, you know, our kids' ability to learn and work together. It's so nice. It also is mind blowing. It's incredible
0: what they do. <laughs> it's I, I look and say, how do they do that? And, I, 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 and the answer is, I don't know how they do that, but they do. So let me uh, turn back for one last moment, if I might, to Josh Wachtel, who's of course staff member at North Star. Tell people who are listening, if you haven't been to Circus Circus, you have to see this. I, and if you have, you got to go back.
10: Yeah. It, it is the most collaborative circus and most joyful circus. I've seen a, a lot of circuses, and this just leaves me feeling so incredibly good and feeling like it's, it really is the best circus you can see. And to get tickets again, tell us, please, Josh. Smircus.org, Smirkus.org,
0: S-M-I-R-K-U-S dot O-R-G. Josh Wachtel who is a core staff member at North Store, and Josh Shack who is the interim co-executive director of Circus Smirkus. Thank you all so very much. We really appreciate your doing this for Northampton in Northampton it's going to be amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both so very much. See you at the circus. Thank you,
10: Bill. Thank you. I'm back in the circus. I'm back
8: in the small town. Big
6: talk. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
12: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An independent journalist is suing the Northwestern DA's office over a public records request for the criminal records of all police officers in the district. Andrew Quaymeyer, the author of the newsletter Mass Dump, is appealing a decision to omit some officers' names from the request. On the grounds that the state public records law requires all legal documents related to police officers be public. However, DA Sullivan says that the records his office omitted are not relevant to officers' jobs. And that a civilian would have a right to keep certain charges private.
13: You know, it could be an embarrassing record going back to when they were a teenager or, you know, something that's not even relevant to their police work. So we just oppose that.
12: The lawsuit is being heard in Suffolk District Court, and D.A. Sullivan said the case could take as long as two years if they don't settle in the meantime. East Hampton passed an ordinance last night related to crisis pregnancy centers. It came down to a six to nine vote. It aims to protect the privacy of individuals seeking or accessing reproductive and gender-affirming care from city employees attempting to report such activities to states that may impose civil or criminal penalties for partaking in those services. Additionally, the city's health department will let residents know how they can file a complaint if they have a problem. More affordable housing is coming to Franklin County with funding support from Mass Housing's Neighborhood Stabilization Program. Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority's Rural Development Inc. received $250,000 for the purchase and renovation of a three bedroom home on Cleveland Street. The Habitat for Humanity project constructing six, six single family homes on First Street and Turner's Falls may receive up to $1.2 million from mass housing. All of these homes will be reserved for first time buyers and sold at affordable prices. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holy Oak Media.
4: Yo soy Johan Reshivega con la síntesis informativa de Holy Oak Media. La Corte Suprema anuló el jueves la acción afirmativa en las admisiones universitarias, declarando que la raza no puede ser un factor y obligando a las instituciones de educación superior a buscar nuevas formas de lograr cuerpos estudiantiles diversos. La mayoría conservadora de la Corte anuló efectivamente casos que se remontan a 45 años atrás al invalidar los planes de admisión en Harvard y la Universidad de Carolina del Norte, las universidades privadas y públicas más antiguas del país respectivamente. La decisión, al igual que el trascendental fallo sobre el aborto del año pasado que anuló Roe versus Wade, marcó la realización de un objetivo legal conservador buscado durante mucho tiempo. El presidente del Tribunal Supremo, John Roberts, dijo que durante demasiado tiempo las universidades han concluido erróneamente que la piedra de toque de la identidad de un individuo no son los desafíos superados, las habilidades desarrolladas o las lecciones aprendidas, sino el color de su piel. Nuestra historia constitucional no tolera esa elección. Desde la Casa Blanca, el presidente Joe Biden dijo que estaba muy, muy enérgicamente en desacuerdo con el fallo de la Corte e instó a las universidades a buscar otras rutas hacia la diversidad, en lugar de dejar que el fallo sea la última palabra. El juez Clarence Thomas, el segundo juez negro de la nación que durante mucho tiempo había pedido el fin de la acción afirmativa, escribió que la decisión ve las políticas de admisión de las universidades por lo que son, Preferencias sin rumbo, basadas en la raza, diseñadas para garantizar una mezcla racial particular en sus clases de ingreso. Por su parte, la jueza Sonia Sotomayor, la primera latina de la corte, escribió en desacuerdo que la decisión hace retroceder décadas de precedentes y avances trascendentales. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega. Y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
12: This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: This is Your State U you, with the Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page, With us today, we are honored to have the President of the University of Massachusetts, Marty Meehan. Let me turn the microphone over to you, Max. There are things that are so pressing, so important, and have just happened that I really would appreciate hearing from you and from President Meehan what UMass is going to do in particular about the Supreme Court decision regarding affirmative action and student debt. So I turn the microphone
14: to you, Max. Thank you very much, Bill, and welcome President Meehan.
13: Thanks, Max. Good to join you. Good, good to join Bill.
14: Glad to have you here. So, so President uh, Marty Mean is the president of the UMass system, the five campus system that enrolls around 75,000 students every year, about half of our all of our public higher education students in the Commonwealth. So, Marty, this is a really a tumultuous time and what happened uh, almost exactly a week ago was at the Supreme Court in Thursday and then Friday of last week made two major decisions, one on essentially eliminating um, race as a as a consideration in college admissions, public and private, and then the next day they threw out President Biden's student debt, um, you know, forgiveness program that he had, that he had um, put in place. Uh, last year. So let's start with the first one. What is your reaction to the Supreme Court's uh, conservative majority eliminating consideration of race in college admissions?
13: Well, first of all, Max, uh, uh, both the affirmative action and the loan forgiveness decisions, I I think, reflect a troublesome trend, basically making higher education uh, opportunity less accessible. So both of them are bad decisions. Couple that on the uh, on the abortion rights uh, uh, decision earlier, uh, you can see the uh, importance of the United States Supreme Court. And uh, I want to get into the substance of of your question, but I just, I have to remark that after Donald Trump was elected president, on all of our campuses, at least the undergraduate campuses, in Amherst, and Lowell, and Boston, and in Dartmouth, there were protests. And I made it a point to try to get to as many protests as I could, and I I asked folks how many people didn't vote in the general election, and and a lot of students raised their hand, and they said, no, 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 I was for Bernie. I didn't vote in the general. I didn't vote in the general. And I said, do you think Hillary Clinton would have been better in terms of Supreme Court uh, nominees than, than Donald Trump's going to be? And and we're paying a heavy, heavy price for that. But to get into the decision, I, I, I disagree strongly with the decision. I agree with the dissent written by uh uh, by Justice Sotomayor, who, who who basically said that this thing imposes a, a superficial rule of color colorblindness as a constitutional principle in in a, in a basically a segregated society. So it, how it affects UMass, we we don't use race as a factor in admissions, but we make sure that we are diverse and like President Biden's approach, we value uh, the uh, uh, diversity. We, we value the adversity that young people have experienced on their educational journey, uh, and we consider their financial means, where they grew up, where they went to high school, and their personal experiences with either hardship or discrimination. And we've made, by the way, Max, we've made enormous progress. I mean, UMass undergraduates, students of color, uh, in the fall of 2021 was 43%. That's up from... 2015 when it was 33%. We're, we're, we're going to do everything we can to do things like increase financial aid, expand early college programs, and, and we're going to push all of the campuses to keep getting more and more diverse. Now, we, we'll, we'll do it within the law that doesn't get us into trouble, but, but UMass is going to reflect the population at large, and, and that means we're going to continue to strive for more uh, diverse students, more diverse faculty, and more diverse administrators.
0: Could you could stay with that for a Thank minute, you. please, President Meehan? I'd like to know how UMass is going to deal with the statement in Chief Justice Robert's opinion that it's okay for students to write about um, uh, how they've overcome uh, uh, obstacles, racial, including racial animus, in their lives, but not to have considerations of race per se, how will the University of Massachusetts and other colleges and universities, how are you going to thread that needle? It's okay for students to mention their race and to talk about overcoming obstacles, but then the race shouldn't be a consideration somehow. Don't understand how that's going to work. Can you help me? Yeah, and
13: that's that's (laughs) a great question, Bill. And, And let me tell you what we're doing right now. Our lawyers in the general counsel office, uh, in in my office here, uh, have been studying this decision, looking at other decisions, and we're going to find a way to meet our mission uh, as a university. And also, you you mentioned thread the needle, and that's exactly what it's going to be. But we believe that we can thread that needle in a way that allows us to increase, continue to increase uh, diversity and continue, as I say, to to accept students who who come from different high schools, different backgrounds, have had have struggled first-generation uh, uh, college uh, students, and we're we're going to continue to do all that, but we're going to master what the decision says, and then frankly thread the needle to make sure that we are in compliance, but but making sure we do what we have to do, and that is to remain a very diverse institution and to become. A more diverse institution.
14: Right. We're speaking we with, with
13: uh, underway, President Marty Meehan, in in I'm yeah, sorry. I, I just want to add, Max, that uh, you know the Biden administration is giving colleges and universities a lot of help and guidance on this. So we are going to, as a as a university community nationwide, I think I think that that, that we all are on the same team in terms of we're going to figure out a way not to let this decision negatively impact the diversity of our universities.
14: So I uh, I am here in Orlando at the moment because the National Education Association is having its annual meeting and I had a chance to have a, a, a sit down with the uh, Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona and he is already working on an, a, addressing very specifically the student debt forgiveness issue that was also the, the Biden program on student debt forgiveness was thrown out They are turning on a dime and figuring out a new way to help with that debt forgiveness, and they are very, very committed to that. I would like to... You know what?
13: i got to tell you, I am very heartened by the White House and and the Secretary of Education. They have aggressively responded, uh, cutting in half the amount that borrowers have to pay each month from 10% to 5% of discretionary uh, income, guaranteeing that no borrower earning... Under 225 percent of the federal poverty level will have to make a monthly payment under, under this plan for giving loan balances after 10 years of payments. I think, I think the Biden administration and the secretary have responded very aggressively, and, uh, and we're, we're going to be in a, for a battle. But I, I have to say I'm impressed by their response,
4: and I'm happy to hear I'm,
13: that the secretary is reinforcing that with, uh, with you. But, uh, again, at UMass, we're going to redouble our efforts That we've been making Uh, since 2018, uh, average UMass undergraduate student debt has actually declined because we're putting more and more money into need-based financial aid, which is which I think is really important in terms of dealing with this. But uh, it's a very troubling decision. It honestly is.
0: I think that both decisions are really troubling, and I would like to to spend another uh, few minutes, if we might, President Marty Meehan, on the Supreme Court's Affirmative Action Commission because, as Buzz has been pointing out to me as we've been talking, uh, the total African-American student population uh, by percentage at UMass is about 5.5%, which is down significantly from what it was some years ago. So I'm wondering if that that uh, experience can be reversed. And if you have concerns in that regard.
13: Well, I could tell you as a system, uh, as a whole, the number of people of color is, is, up, uh, is up pretty, pretty dramatically at, at, uh, at our campuses. Listen, we have a major issue in this country. I believe our society is going to be evaluated uh, in history in terms of you know, how we deal with African-American males what we do to make sure that you look at the data, and and it, it's one of the one of the real issues we have in society is we have to do a better job getting more people of color through K two twelve twelve education and getting them to college, and and I honestly believe that this generation will be evaluated in history on our ability to do that. We do have a crisis right now, which is what makes these decisions uh, so outrageous is, is the fact that we. We haven't dealt with the crisis we have right now.
14: Max. Yes, yeah, so President Marty, me we're speaking to the U- UMass president. It's interesting to when um, what you're a lot of what we've just been talking about is uh, the many policies, both by the, the UMass um, system under your direction, as well as from the Biden administration, which is to make um, public colleges and universities more affordable and accessible. And I think that points to an important point. While these decisions are terrible, they in practice immediately affected a fairly small number of students who are applying for very selective universities, the University of North Carolina and Harvard University. But in fact, 6% of all college students are in colleges with 25% or lower admissions rate, meaning the vast majority, even for our UMass system, is much more open. Um, and I actually think it's a good thing. But when it still, we still have the problem of um, needing to do a better job of recruiting um, our students of color who, in America, race and class overlap. So our students of color, because of longstanding structural racism, tend to also have less family wealth to allow them to go to college without incurring huge debt. So it seems to me a big solution to the problem or a response to the Supreme Court decision is to really go even further and harder towards a real guarantee of a debt-free public higher education in Massachusetts. I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
13: Uh, I, I agree. And one of the things that we're doing right now, Max, is we're expanding early college programs in diverse communities so that uh, young people in those communities UMass as possible, and save money by starting college courses while they're still in high school. We have more than 900 early college students in Massachusetts uh, the, at Boston, Dartmouth, and Lowell in programs this coming academic year. UMass Amherst, uh, I've talked to the incoming chancellor, and they will soon be launching uh, its initiative as well, which I think will get it exactly what you're striving to get it. But but look, there's no question we need to be able to produce graduates without debt. As it is, Max, sometimes the sticker price at UMass uh, scares diverse students away because they're not aware of the financial aid. They're not aware of the fact that we put um, 380 million dollars of need financial aid into the budget every year. Well, certainly this year, it's it's, it's that much. So I think a lot of times the sticker price scares people uh, away. But but. We've increased financial aid, um, you know, from 236 million in 2015 to 395 million in, in fiscal year 23. That's a 67 percent increase. But Max, to your point, a lot of a lot of folks don't realize that that this financial aid is available, and sometimes it's an impediment.
5: We are so going
14: to take a quick. You ask President Marty Meehan. I think we will, if it's okay, we will come back and talk a little more about the next tangible steps, including what's going on with the state budget, the Cherish Act, other ways that we can advance high-quality, debt-free public higher education. And we will uh, be back in just a minute. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman
6: and Buzz Eisenberg.
0: What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read like Happy Place by Emily Henry, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store.
12: Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together.
8: What's Cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
0: Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese
9: salad.
12: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586 7400.
9: WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community
6: nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. W H M P, And we
0: continue Talk the Talk and your state, you, with the president of the University of Massachusetts, Marty Meehan, and the Massachusetts Teachers Association president, Max Page. Max?
14: Thank you, Bill. And um, Marty, you know, we've been been talking about the Supreme Court decisions, but I think a lot of people recognize that a a big part of the action is going to take place at the state level. We, We can't expect a lot of wonderful progressive action from the Congress in the very near future. So we have some options in the state, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts about, um, first, the, the Cherish Act as a way forward. This is something, of course, we have proposed the Mass Teachers Association with our own state senator, Joe Comerford, and hear your thoughts about that, and as well as the state budget, which is still being hashed out, even though we have passed the July 1st deadline. So
13: how, yes. what do you uh, see and-
14: coming up um, on helping out public higher ed?
13: Well, first of all, I support the Cherish Act, have supported it in the past, and will support it in the future. As I supported the uh, uh, Fair Share Amendment, which, uh, you know, frankly, I'm hoping that, that we can, in higher education, voters specifically said that they wanted more of an investment in public higher education, uh, and I'm hoping that we will get uh, more assistance from both of those avenues. And, and, look, part of my job as a president of the University of Massachusetts is to advocate for more uh, public funding for UMass, and the reason for that is because historically Massachusetts public higher education has been historically underfunded when you compare with other states, other states like California and Maryland and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, where where the state builds all their buildings, takes all uh, care of all the deferred maintenance. So historically. We have been behind in Massachusetts, and I think part of it is that there, there was a bias for years, decades, uh, in favor of private institutions over public institutions with a feeling, Max, that, uh, that, that, that we have these great private institutions. Why do we need a world-class public uh, research university? Well, we do because UMass is educating the workforce of Massachusetts, and, and, and the, the people of Massachusetts attended UMass, whether it's to be an engineer to be a nurse, to, comp- to be a computer scientist, uh, to-, to go to med school or, or, or law school, whatever they're planning to do, uh, they're at, they're here at UMass, and they're going to stay at UMass. So it's really important that the legislature invests in the University of Massachusetts. We have two uh, bills that passed, one in the House, one in the Senate, in addition to the governor's bill. And what we're doing now is just trying to get the higher numbers wherever we, we, we can uh, the Senate, for example, included 125 million dollars for uh, higher education capital, which, frankly, is as you know, Max, on many of our campuses, deferred maintenance is a major, major issue. Um, the Senate also put 30 million dollars in for uh, student support services. We have a major issue with uh, with behavioral health and mental health on all of our campuses. It's not just our students, by the way, as you know. It's it's it, we've been through. Covid and and we have faculty who are hurting. We have staff that are hurting. Uh, the in addition to that, the Senate uh, put in some. Uh, the House put in some money for uh, an endowment set uh, incentive, which we support. And uh, and and we're looking for more money for high demand professional scholarships. So we're working with the legislature uh, as much as we can. We're hopeful that that the fair share amendment will result in. Uh, in more funding, but uh, but we're just going to have to keep and frankly, working, Max, with the MTA and, and, and all the other folks in Massachusetts to make it a reality.
14: And I will add one uh, data point that we just put out, which is a new poll that we commissioned um, of the general public, and 80% would support a ballot initiative for high-quality, debt-free public higher education as a right of every resident. So the general public public sees this as a crucial issue. And I guess I want to lift up that the Supreme Court for it's it's terrible. The Supreme Court decisions that we were talking about earlier. But the one good side is it lifts up how crucial our public institutions are, including the UMass system to achieving both economic and racial equity in the Commonwealth. Um, It is, as you said, it is we who educate the working class, the middle classes, it is not generally Harvard and MIT as wonderful as institutions as they are. If we're building future citizens and workers in the Commonwealth, it is the public system, it's the community colleges, state universities, and of course, your five campuses. I'll give you the last word, Marty Meen, we just have a minute about your prognosis for this budget and the future.
13: Well, on the issue of debt-free, all I will tell you is I attended one of our campuses, uh, UMass Lowell, In the late '70s, and I was able to pay for tuition and books by working every summer, then working part time, and and I got through debt free. Now, if you look at the cost of a UMass education today and factor in inflation, which was reasonable, the cost actually hasn't gone up; it stayed about the same if you factor in inflation. What has shifted is when I was a student, the state paid. 85% 85% of the budget at UMass. Lowell today the state pays about 23% of the overall budget. So we need to get to debt free. A kid can't come to uh, student, can't come to UMass and, and get out debt free without significant changes in the assistance that we give students. Right. That's the way I got an education. I wouldn't have had the opportunity without it. And we ought to provide it to the next generation as well.
14: Thank you very much. We've been speaking with, uh, UMass system president, Marty Meehan and, uh, uh, we will be talking further no doubt about uh, ongoing reaction to the supreme court decisions. Max I'd Pe- to join you anytime Max and uh, Bill and Buzz great to join you.
0: Thank you both so very
6: much. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
8: I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files.
15: My name is Silas Koff. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org.
6: WHMP Northampton and this is talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP
2: and welcome to talk the talk I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman and this is Thursday it is 10 o'clock this is something I look forward to all week long it is science and sensibility with professor Brian Adams and he always brings in very interesting guests and who do you have today Brian
5: Oh, Buzz, first just got to tell you how hot it is out there. For our listeners, for me, it is hot, 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 and it's days like these that I fantasize about being in western Massachusetts 20,000 years ago. Because you know where we would have been, Buzz, 20,000 years ago? In western Massachusetts. In (laughs) in western Massachusetts. (laughs) Riding a dinosaur. No, No, no. No, no. You're both wrong. We would be under a mile of ice a mile of ice, and I would be chilling with my MAGA hat on, (laughs) make America glaciated again. And here to talk about glaciers and other fascinating geologic wonders is our very own Richard Little. He is a colleague of Buzz and mine, Professor Emeritus of Geology at Greenfield Community College, author, educator, Armored mud ball evangelist. We'll get to that in just a moment. And,
2: and I <laughs> should just add, universally respected.
5: Yes, yes. Um, Richard, let's talk. Let's start with 20,000 years ago. A mile of ice? It's the last ice age, right? Is that really true?
15: Oh, well, thanks, for Brian. It's great to be here today to talk a little bit of geology, particularly some cool geology. Geology is so cool, is that right? Particularly when we talk about glaciers. But yeah, 20,000 years ago, the continental ice sheet was way down... At Long Island Sound, building up that uh, Long Island, as we know today. Um, And we were under the ice, as well as everything else in um, New England.
5: And what happens?
15: So, the climate warms, and the climate warms the ice, starts to melt back. That's called glacial retreat. But here's something that people have a grand misconception (coughs) about. They think that when the ice retreated, it actually moved back to Canada. But, of course, the ice is going to keep moving forward. It's just that with the warmer climate, it melts faster than it moves forward. So when you're looking at it, it actually seems like it is retreating, but it's just melting faster than it's moving forward. So that's that's kind of the, the visual anomaly here. So it didn't actually move backwards.
5: How do we know this, Dick? I mean, how, how do we know that... that, that... There was, that we're under ice? What are signs of glaciation?
15: Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's a great question because when you're under the ice, the moving ice is going to shape the landscape. <coughs> so let's take a mountaintop like uh, oh, Mount Tom, for instance, and almost any other mountain here <coughs> in western New England. As the ice moves over the mountaintop, it smooths the north side because the ice is moving from the north, so it tends to smooth off the north side and make it kind of gentle, but the southerly sides are what we call plucked. They get pulled, uh, These blocks of ice pull, the moving ice, I should say, pull blocks of rock off the mountainside. So they become oversteepened. So if you have a view of the landscape towards the Berkshires or central uplands of Massachusetts, you will see that the north sides of the hills are more gentle than the southerly sides. And uh, that's called a roche moutonnée. Sometimes called a whaleback,
5: roche moutonnée, uh, roche
15: moutonnée. Yeah, yes. good old French term. So, uh-huh.
5: for the smooth north side and jagged, jagged plucked southern south side. side. Yes, uh-huh. and most yeah. of our. But uh, um, that's not the only way that we can identify glaciers. Can you talk about erratics and and uh, that that sign of very cool rocks out there? That-
15: oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, so the moving glacier scratches rocks, so we see lots of smooth and scratched rock surfaces. We see, as you said, erratics. These are rocks that were plucked away from uh, mountainsides and then moved by the moving ice. When the ice melts away, boom, there it is. It's dropped on the landscape, but it's not in the same place that it came from. So that's why it's erratic. And then, of course, the big thing is, when the ice makes it here to Franklin and Hampshire County, somewhere around 16,000 years ago, we have a lake that is following the front of the ice, and that's the great glacial Lake Hitchcock.
5: So 20,000 years ago, we're under ice, and 15,000 years ago, we're under water?
15: That's right. That's right. As the ice melts back, the Connecticut River Valley is a lowland, of course, and as the ice made it to, uh, it's melting back now, when the ice melts back to central Connecticut around 18,000 years ago, there is a dam of debris across the Connecticut River Valley, and that acts as a dam. So when the ice melts back from that point in central Connecticut, around Middletown, we have a lake because the uh, meltwater is dammed up. And so the more the ice melts, the longer that lake becomes. And so here, sitting in the flatlands of uh, Northampton today, we're on the old lake floor of Glacial Lake Hitchcock. Of Glacial Lake Hitchcock. That's why it's so flat. That's why there's no stones around here.
5: So we know, so, you know, when we talk about farming, this is such a, the valley is such a wonderful place to farm. Is that a result of Glacial Lake Hitchcock?
15: Yeah, there's two things. There's the, the clay of the old lake bed, number one, but then once the lake drained, the river comes back to the valley and starts to cut into those layers and gives us uh, what we call terrace deposits, floodplain deposits. And that gives us a nice capping of silt and fine sand. If you're just trying to plant on clay, that's kind of uh, swampy. You know, the the water doesn't penetrate very well into it. But if you can have the clay eroded just a bit by the curving river meandering back and forth, and once again, this is after Lake Hitchcock drained, the river comes back and cuts into the clay layers, then that flood deposit is just a perfect material for agriculture because it's not as uh, swampy as just the clay and it's got enough um, transmissibility of the water so that when it rains it will go through the roots can penetrate and we get the best soils in the world so it's those flood deposits on the terraces that make this absolutely perfect
5: we're talking with richard little richard is professor emeritus of geology at greenfield community college Um, when Before the show, you said to me, we're here because of geology. And I <laughs> yes. thought that was an interesting statement. What does yeah. that mean?
15: Yeah, Brian, most people don't realize this, but the reason why we are actually here and our families have perhaps been here for you know, generations is because of geology. We talked about agriculture, so that is one big thing that brings people to the Connecticut River Valley. But there's also the historic industry. So industry needs power. And how do we get power? Well, historically, it was waterfalls. Now, most rivers don't have waterfalls. Waterfalls are a very special disruption to a river system. And the way Lake Hitchcock comes into this is, when you have Lake Hitchcock and you have all that mud that we talked about from the lake bed, when the lake finally drains and the river comes back to the valley... It finds itself not in its old riverbed, but flowing over the top of some hard rock once in a while, and that makes a waterfall. So we have these waterfalls that develop after Lake Hitchcock, and that's what gives us the hydropower for places like Holyoke and Turners Falls.
5: And we are the birthplace in Massachusetts of the American Industrial Revolution, Right. Yes. Thanks to water and water power. Thanks.
15: and that's all due to Lake Hitchcock. So Thank you, Lake Hitchcock. Well, absolutely.
5: Yeah. Um, uh,
15: and Rick. then also, I just want to say that the other thing that brings people to this region is the transportation corridor. And, of course, it's this north-south river here, the good old Connecticut River, that gives us the pathway from the coast up into the mountains in that north-south direction. And the tributaries help bring us east and west. So it's the river development that gives us a transportation network that brings people here also. So it's all geology.
5: you look at when towns were incorporated, so many of the uh, river towns are talking about the 1600s and the late 1600s. But if you get up into the hill towns, much later. So people start in the valley and then moving up into the hill towns. Richard, let's go back even further. Uh, back in time, hundreds of millions of years ago, when all the continents were smushed together in this giant landmass, right? Uh, What happened, and how did that split apart, and how do we know that in the valley?
15: (laughs) Yes, uh, one of the great things about the Connecticut Valley is we illustrate here the birth and the death of that great supercontinent known as Pangea. So, If we go back about 500 million years, we find that, first of all, we're much closer to the equator and we're all in uh, separate continents that are not the same as today. And to make this story brief, they come together. They come together by the end of what's called the Paleozoic Era, roughly 250 million years ago, just before the dinosaurs so it's before the dinosaurs, these continents are together and we have a supercontinent known as Pangea, which means all the lands together. So in the process of doing that, there's all sorts of what we would call metamorphism because when pieces of continents come together, they are going to create mountain ranges and you'll have things like the Himalayas right here in New England, you know, pieces of continents coming together. So that's the creation of Pangea. It gives us what we call metamorphic rocks, igneous intrusions, which are granites today. So what's New Hampshire? The granite state. We have granite quarries up and down the region. And that's all due to
5: the creation of Pangea. But but first, how, how do continents move?
15: Okay, there's heat in the earth, right? And the heat has to get out and there's heat in a big pot of stew and the heat has to get out. So if you look in a pot of stew, the carrots, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the carrots are all swirling around because the heat is coming out from the burner underneath. And on the earth, those carrots are continents. You know, we have hard places that float at the top of the earth. It's the earth's crust, and the earth's crust is actually thinner than if the earth was the size of an apple, the crust is thinner. Than the skin of the apple, and it's able to move around as the heat moves out of the earth. And so it's all, it's heat, it's driven by heat.
5: So, what happens to Pangea?
15: So, Pangea eventually breaks. All supercontinents have to break, they have to die. And that's because the heat, once again, is the problem. The heat has to get out of the earth. And if you put all the continents together in one spot, the heat can't get out easily. And so, the middle of the supercontinent starts to heat up and rise. It just expands. And the moving continents are now able to crack and slide away from the middle. And the way that is important for the Connecticut Valley is those cracks caused by Pangaea splitting, they're called rift valleys, and the biggest one was over near Boston, and that's where the ocean finally came in to give us the Atlantic Ocean. But right here, in our valley, there is a major crack that was caused by the splitting of Pangea, and this crack goes all the way from Keene, New Hampshire, down past New Haven, Connecticut, and we're right in this rift valley, and the sediments wash into the valley. That's the red rocks that we have here today. The dinosaurs walked up and down the valley, leaving their footprints. we got a lava flow. That's the Holyoke Range. And so that whole history that makes our valley so interesting, came from the breakup of Pangaea.
5: So Pangaea was trying to break at the, where the Connecticut River Valley is now. If it had, we'd be oceanfront property, That's right.
15: right? We, we almost were oceanfront. That's right. We didn't, didn't quite get deep enough to, to have the ocean come in.
5: And my question always is, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of years ago. How do we know this?
15: Oh, that's a good question. We know that very, very exactly, really, because we have a lava flow in the valley, and lavas have radioactive minerals. And you know that radioactive minerals will decay at a certain rate, and you can get a radioactive date from those lavas because of the decay of the radioactive minerals within And so we know that the lava came out at, and here it is, fanfare, the lava, the valley was forming, and the lava was coming out at 201 million years ago. And in time, that is early Jurassic, and everybody has heard about Jurassic. So we're Jurassic Park. I am feeling so insignificant right now. (laughs) That's right.
2: (laughs) It's
5: (laughs) a long (laughs) time. We're we're talking with uh, Richard Little. Richard is Professor Meredith. Of geology at Greenfield Community College, he continues to teach at GCC. He is an author, he's an educator, and when we come back, we're going to talk about his uh, prize possession—a possession, not possession uh, issue: oh. uh, armored mud oh, balls. One so, of the rarest things
15: in the world. Yes, and Stay one tuned. thing that you are in
5: uh, very passionate about. So we'll be back with armored mud balls and Richard Little.
6: the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP your phone is a radio your computer is a radio your smart speaker is a radio and your radio is still a radio you can listen to WHMP on all your devices and on 101.5 and 1400 WHMP
9: Ladies, Ladies and, gentlemen. and gentlemen, boys and girls, Circus, circus Smircus, Smircus is coming to today. town. Circus Smircus, the traveling youth circus. Jugglers, aerialists, acrobats, and wire walkers. Laughs, thrills, and nonstop fun. Four shows at the three county fairgrounds in Northampton this weekend. Saturday, one and six, Sunday, 11 and four. Get tickets now at circussmirkus.org or at the gate. Circus Smircus, the traveling youth circus is coming to town.
14: Want to make a difference in a big way? Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called Bigs. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County.
7: There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connection's Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge.
6: You're listening to "Talk the Talk" with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP
2: and Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg are listening. At rapt attention to uh, geologist and professor emeritus from Greenfield Community College, Richard Little, talking with Brian Adams. Brian, this is just a fascinating discussion.
5: We're we're talking at break. This sort of concept of time and how difficult it is to uh, imagine what things were like. Uh, Two hundred million years ago, five hundred million years ago—you know, the the beginning of the of the Earth—you know, billions of 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 years ago. I, I should have
2: uh, said we were listening with raptor attention, right? Oh, oh
5: no, right. it was good. You didn't, but <laughs> <laughs> exactly, um, Richard. One of the things that you are famous for is armored mud balls. Yes. What the heck is an armored <laughs> mud ball? And how did you get famous for it? Oh, this
15: this is such a great story because. It's interesting, it's funny, and it's geologically significant and it's only here in Franklin County actually between Greenfield Gill, Turner's Falls and Deerfield. These are the only places where these rare forms have been found. And we go back to the Mesozoic and here's the story, let's go back to the Jurassic. So, we were talking about the split of Pangea and the fact that we get a rift valley. Well, when you have a rift valley, this mountain's fairly close to you on one side, and then the streams from those mountains wash into that crack that we call the rift valley, and they bring sediments So sand, gravel, mud, that's getting washed into that valley. Well, once in a while, a stream would undercut a muddy bank, and a chunk of mud would fall into that stream This is mainly during floods, by the way. So at the time, we had a lot of these flash floods. So there'd be a flash flood, and then for a few hours, the stream would race. It would undercut a muddy bank, and this piece of mud that was hard would tumble into the stream bed. It would tumble downstream, and it would get round on the outside and sticky on the outside. And as it rolled down the stream, it would attach pebbles attract pebbles from the stream bed. They would attach to the outside, to the rim. And that's what we call the armor. So these are armored mud balls. And then they have to be buried quickly, turned to stone, and then years, years, 200 million years later, they have to be found by someone, and it turned out... That that someone is you. Yeah, it turned out that was me. Now, these are called sedimentary structures, geologically... And I think everybody has heard about raindrops and ripple marks and fossils that are in sedimentary rocks. Well, those are also sedimentary structures. But these are some of the rarest sedimentary structures that have ever been found in in geology because they're very rare to to form anyway, and then they're very fragile. So once they dry, they just crumble, you see. So they have to be buried quickly. And then, of course, they have to go through the geological process of becoming a rock, and then they have to be exposed somewhere on the surface of the earth millions of years later. And then, as I said, somebody's got to find them. And in this case, they were quarried rocks. So there just happened to be a rock quarry at the exact spot where there were these armored mud balls from the Jurassic. And so as the quarry people were taking chunks of rock out to you know, build roads and bridges and so forth for the foundations, uh, they just happened to quarry a zone that had these armored mud balls. And so The quick story is this. When I first got my job in Greenfield Community College, I came here from California. I'm traveling around looking at the area. I drove to the riverbank in Turner's Falls. There was an old foundation from a suspension bridge that was there across the river. The suspension bridge was long gone, so I didn't realize it at the moment. But when I was there and looked at a cable anchor that stood up about five or six feet tall, there were these blocks of rock And within them, there were these round balls with the pebble armor. And I said, oh, look, that's unusual. It's an armored mud ball. And then years later, I had a chance to realize that these were so rare. In the whole world, Franklin County is the only place where you can easily see them. They have been found in a few other places in the world, but they're in Greenland, Spitsbergen, along a coastal cliff in Columbia, so it's like way out of the way, and they just can't really be seen. But here in Franklin County, because they were quarried, they can be seen. So they're extremely rare, and we're and they're fun to look at. Everybody who sees them just you know smiles and says, "Wow, look at that! It's an armored mud ball."
5: We're all we're all smiling <laughs> right now, thinking about armored mud balls. You are such so passionate about this. You're trying to make it the state armored mud oh, ball or yes. something.
15: So it occurred to me that. If these are going to be preserved and appreciated, they they really need to be celebrated officially. And uh, thanks to the work of Jack Lewis several years ago, we have a state dinosaur, Podocosaurus holiocensis. And that state dinosaur will now be remembered forever. So I got to thinking that, you know what, Massachusetts deserves to celebrate this unique feature that you can only really see right here in our state. And so I contacted Jack Lewis, and he was behind us in in this project, as well as our local legislators. And so right now, in the state legislators, in this this state legislative session, the armored mud balls are going to be considered to be a state sedimentary structure. So they'll join, you know, the state dog and the state rock and... The state muffin. Did you realize that we have a state muffin? If
5: We have a state muffin. We should definitely have a state sedimentary. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Armored mudball. Um, when when we we're at break, Bill, uh, Bill, and I w- w- was talking about time again, mm. and this this concept of geologic time is so so interesting. Twenty thousand years ago, we were under ice. Twenty thousand years from now, will we be under ice again? Is another ice age
15: coming? Oh, another ice age is definitely coming. And if you doubt that, stand back and look at the Earth. Take a look at the globe here of our Earth, and you'll see that in the Northern Hemisphere, so many of our land masses are just right up around the North Pole. So what does that mean? It's cold up here. And the ocean does not get up here, bringing heat to the degree that it might if we were all separated, if all the continents were separated and closer to the equator. So the short story about that is, yes, it will get cold after we go through our global warming event that we're certainly in now. Um, people have suggested, when I asked them that question, the climatologists, that perhaps 30 to 50,000 years from now, we'll go back into another ice age.
5: Uh, that's a little too long for me.
15: Yeah, don't.
0: <laughs> I need a little ice age. <laughs> I, I, this I just afternoon. wanted to know: Do I have to put this on my worry list
5: or or not? No, I think I think no, <laughs> no for that climate change. Climate change, warmer, yes, yes. <laughs> getting getting colder. No, um, we just have about a minute left, and before we break, um, Richard, places for folks to go to see some of this stuff in just just a minute. Can you help listeners out of, of where they can go? Oh,
15: yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, definitely the Beneski Museum of Amherst College is a, d- a destination you should go. Drive to the top of the Holyoke Range. You're on a lava flow looking across the great view of the valley. Uh, you can go to Greenfield Community College. We have a geology path with all the rock types from the region that are spread out there in about oh, 60 or 70 feet along uh, right beside the main building. Easy to find, and it's online if you want to see the guide to that. I also wrote a book about the valley, about where to go in the valley, uh, called Exploring Franklin County.
5: By Richard Little. And listeners could find that book where?
15: uh, You can find that book in some of our local bookstores, and it's also online.
5: We've been talking with Richard Little. Richard is Professor Emeritus of Geology at GCC, and we've gone back in time about 500 million years ago and gone forward in time about 40,000 years ago. So thank you so much, Richard, for taking us on this time travel through the wonderful geology of the valley and encourage our listeners to get out. Maybe not at one, you know, at, uh, today. It's a, a little hot, but um, this evening. How about that? Um, get out there and look at some of the marvelous geology features that we have. Thank you so much, Richard
2: Little, for joining us today. Thank you so much, as always, Brian Adams. We're going to be ba- right back with uh, uh,
6: some jazz. We'll be there in a minute. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
12: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An independent journalist is suing the Northwestern DA's office over a public records request for the criminal records of all police officers in the district. Andrew Quaymeyer, the author of the newsletter Mass Dump, is appealing a decision to omit some officers' names from the request. On the grounds that the state public records law requires all legal documents related to police officers be public. However, D.A. Sullivan says that the records his office admitted are not relevant to officers' jobs and that a civilian would have a right to keep certain charges private.
13: You know, it could be an embarrassing record going back to when they were a teenager or, you know, something that's not even relevant to their police work. So we just oppose that.
12: The lawsuit is being heard in Suffolk District Court, and D.A. Sullivan said the case could take as long as two years if they don't settle in the meantime. East Hampton passed an ordinance last night related to crisis pregnancy centers. It came down to a 6-9 to vote. It aims to protect the privacy of individuals seeking or accessing reproductive and gender-affirming care from city employees attempting to report such activities to states that may impose civil or criminal penalties for partaking in those services. Additionally, the city's health department will let residents know how they can file a complaint if they have a problem. More affordable housing is coming to Franklin County with funding support from Mass Housing's Neighborhood Stabilization Program. Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority's Rural Development Inc. received $250,000 for the purchase and renovation of a three bedroom home on Cleveland Street. The Habitat for Humanity project constructing six, six single family homes on First Street and Turner's Falls may receive up to $1.2 million from mass housing. All of these homes will be reserved for first-time buyers and sold at affordable prices. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
9: Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
12: If we didn't for this project the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million and we don't get help with that so this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students
6: where the heart of the pioneer valley lives 1015 and 1400 whmp news information and the arts
12: Everyone loves a clean house, but between our jobs and our families, who has time to keep the house clean? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love the opportunity to put my team of eco friendly cleaners to work in your home or business. At Green Love Eco Cleaning, we use our signature line of non toxic aromatherapy cleaning solutions to keep your home or office clean while promoting greener, healthier lifestyle options for you and your family. To find out more about the services we provide, check out our website at greenloveclean.com.
16: The Federal Aviation Administration has certified the first flying car for testing in the U.S. Alif Automotive said that its vehicle is fully electric and can both fly and travel on roads with a flying range of 110 miles. The company plans to sell its cars for $300,000. A study by Zillow says the United States needs about 4.3 million more homes to meet current demand. Zillow researchers say a lack of affordable homes has created millions of missing households, keeping families in shared homes and unable to strike out on their own. The Federal Trade Commission is suing several companies claiming they are deceptively marketing smoke away as a product that can help people break their addiction to nicotine. It's the first action under a new law designed to protect opioid addicts from false advertising claims. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com.
2: And it is Thursday. I just love Thursdays. We also have Glenn Siegel in our All That Jazz segment. And you have a very special guest today.
7: We do. A good friend as well as an interesting guest. His name is Dennis Steiner. He was uh, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. And after living in L.A., he moved back to Cleveland and immersed himself in the local jazz scene. He moved to Boston in 1979 and with two partners bought the 1369 Jazz Club, a legendary night spot in Inman Square in Cambridge, Mass., He moved to the Valley in 1993, where he has been an integral part of the jazz scene. Hello, Dennis. Great to have you here.
3: Oh, great to be here, Glenn.
7: Yeah. So uh, tell us about your first brush with jazz music. How did you get hooked? Uh, And tell us a little bit about the jazz scene in Cleveland at that time.
3: Yeah, it was probably the early, it was the early 70s. And, uh, you know, there was a, a sort of small scene, you know, kind of diverse little clubs around that would pop up. Uh, one was called like the Smiling Dog Saloon. And, you know, they they were pre- presenting all the fusion that was happening in the early 70s.
7: And talk um, about fusion. What what do you mean well, by that?
3: Fusion was kind of the, uh, the, the mixing of rock and jazz, you know. So what was happening is that they were improvising and doing a lot of things that you never heard rock musicians do, you know, and, and yet they sounded, they had a very rock sound to them. So they were, you know, going off on it. And so it really intrigued me that it was getting, because rock seemed to be getting broader and broader musically. So I, I was naturally attracted to it, um, always attracted to music and always listening to it. And so I needed somewhere to transition to, and I found this um, and when I got to this club called the Smiling Dog Saloon, it, uh, it was, you know, this club that had groups like Weather Report, you know, Chick Korea, you know, uh, Oregon, just a whole host of people that at the time I never even heard of. But I went down and interestingly, they had uh, an opening act for all these headliners and it was this local guitar player named Bill DiRango and Bill DiRango had played with Charlie Parker in 19 in the in 45 all the way to 55 I think and then he was originally from Cleveland came back to Cleveland opened a music shop and all the young musicians of that time that were there heard about his his music store and started going there just really for lessons first and then just to hang out. He Mm -hmm. was like the guru. Yeah. You know, I mean, he knew like Miles Davis and, you know, when Miles Davis would come to town, which he did a few times with his electric band, Bill D'Orango would go backstage and talk to Miles, Mm -hmm. you know. So So did
7: you get to meet him and hang out with him? So,
3: yes. So uh, when I got, I I actually went to see a, an organist named Brian Auger in uh, the Oblivion Express. So mm-hmm. I went down there, and suddenly there was this opening act with just two guys, right? And I was like, wow, what is this? And all of a sudden, you know, uh, this, it was Bill DeRango who was not playing bebop. He, he had like a wah-wah pedal and a fuzz box on his, on his guitar. And he was playing with a drummer named Skip Haddon, who ended up playing on uh, Weather Report's Mysterious Traveler. So, you know, there's this deep connection there. So I just kept going back to this club, and, and it was kind of like Bill and a guy named Ernie Kripta <clears throat> and Skip Hadden were kind of like the house band. So they'd open up for everybody. So hearing Bill Diorango and Skip Haddon just opened me up. Suddenly it was like a, a whole new world.
7: Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And before we get off Cleveland, I know... Uh, Joe Lovano, who's one of the great tenor saxophonists of our time, he's a Cleveland, uh, and his father both from Cleveland. Did you... That was before his time? Well,
3: yeah, no. He he was kind of immersed in, in that scene, too. Okay. You know, so he was playing a lot, and he had played with his father a lot, and I eventually heard his father play. And, you know, Joe was always on the scene, always playing, always doing gigs. I think he started playing, you know, gigs for his... He had to sit in for his father who had a heart attack when he was like 12. Mm -hmm. So he started going to all these kind of gigs and playing on them. So he was a big part of the scene, and he was also in Boston going to Berkeley and also coming back all the time and then transitioning to New York. Mm -hmm. You know, so he would constantly come back. And he'd bring somebody back with him. And there was a guy, uh, a percussionist, Jamie Haddad, whose father owned a restaurant. And, uh, you know, he would have like three-week stints with like Lovano, Kenny Werner, Scott Lee on bass, and uh, Jamie on drums. You know, and they would just play every night for like three weeks.
2: I just want to interject for people who are are listening and are not uh, jazz fans. This litany of names. These are these are some really important people in in the jazz community that uh, that we're we're hearing about a
7: star-studded
2: list mm-hmm. of names. That, yeah, uh,
7: Lovano especially. Uh, you know, as far as you know, current saxophonists. Um, you know, especially with Wayne Shorter's passing and Sonny Rollins is still alive is but not playing. Um, Lovano is is the gold standard, I would say. So what happens in Los Angeles here?
3: Well, Los Angeles for me was just a young hippie going going west <laughs> and hitchhiking around for about a year and then coming back to Cleveland. So, it wasn't really a musical thing, although I was starting even out there to start listening and transitioning into jazz more than than rock, mm-hmm. you know, so. Mm-hmm.
7: So then you uh moved to the Boston area um in the late 70s um Tell us about the Boston scene there, and, and let's get into the 1369 Club, which uh, I lived in Boston in the late 70s, uh, and that was a go-to venue. That was uh, one of the premier places to hear live music, jazz uh, especially, but also blues and, and other musics. So tell us about that transition.
3: Yeah, um, I, I moved there in 79. Uh, I had a friend who was a drummer who was going to Berkeley. It was from my hometown, Um, So I, you know, I wanted to get out of Ohio, basically, and so I uh, went to visit him, and when I did, you know, I saw this really big scene happening, just activity, because Cleveland was so dead that anything in comparison to it was just like, wow, what is this? There were people out at night, you know, the streets were lit, (laughs) you know, it was just like, it was a, a dream, you know, so I got there and i kind of immersed myself in the jazz scene as i did in cleveland but the jazz scene was much bigger you know there were all the berkeley college of music the new england conservatory all these people who were pretty much either connected to somebody international or were international themselves would would be there playing trying to gig and so i was getting my way around the clubs in the 1369 was one of the clubs that I frequented, you know, and made friends there and eventually uh, met two of my partners that wanted to buy the club and included me in that. And so we took off right from there because we had been always roaming around the city and saying, boy, you know, if they would only book, you know, so-and-so at the 1369, it would be a perfect venue. Mm-hmm. So we went in with that idea, and that's what we did. And then it just skyrocketed, yeah. really.
7: You know? So what was the club like before you bought it? Was
3: well, it was mainly a local scene, and it was really—it had a few people. There, uh, the second owners—it was originally owned by these two brothers— and they made it a jazz club, but they had very local people, and they were really relying on Berkeley students. So, you know, it was always dead. Nobody would be in there. Nobody was attracted to it except maybe their friends. And a lot of times, and, and everybody would get paid like 10 15 bucks a man, and that would be <coughs> it, and you'd come. So there was no real motivation for doing anything to get a big crowd in there, you know, and there was no star attraction really well, so well, let me
2: let me ask you dennis uh we're talking with dennis steiner and uh, when you decided to get involved in the 1369 club um in the boston area what makes someone want to be a club owner i mean yeah is it your love of music is i mean obviously you want it to be profitable but uh tell me uh, there's a lot of complications in owning a club there's
3: alcohol involved there's all oh, kinds yeah. of issues yeah um it, it was really love of music in love of jazz. You know, I was just so immersed in the scene and was hearing from many musicians, there's nowhere to play. Where do we play? How do we get in there, you know? And we can't get into these clubs. They're not really booking us. And, and also, we're not going to work for $15 a man. You know, it's just not affordable for us to do that. You know, it's not worth it. So with all that in mind, we said, and we didn't think of profit. You know, we were kind of just eager to do this thing and see what happens and see if it, it really works out. And then once we got in there, then we had to start thinking, well, you know, how do we make some money here? We have to we're, or we're not going to stay alive, you know.
2: Bill, you, you were talking um, about uh, nightclubs and uh, why we don't see as many as we used to.
0: Yeah, I'd be interested to know what are the major obstacles, because it is certainly of great significance here that the nightclubs, I'm not sure that's quite the right description, but certainly the music venues that we've had have uh, come on some very hard times. And I'm wondering what you see as the major obstacles to those kinds of clubs uh, continuing being vibrant and being economically successful.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's not really popular music, so it, it doesn't really draw a big crowd. And You're talking lot, about jazz now. I'm talking about yeah, the jazz scene. Okay. So a lot of the names uh, are not recognizable, you know. So people don't automatically see it in the paper and say, "Oh, wow, I got to go see this." Sometimes so, they do, but so most is the, of the name, time they so don't.
0: as a club owner, is the name of the group or the Uh, musicians who you've booked, is that the essence of making
3: this work? Well, uh, I'd say part of it is that, that you you start drawing people through a name, but then what we did was we suddenly found ourselves getting a reputation where people were going, wow, I really heard some great music there. I'm going to keep looking to see who's playing. And I would have many people walk in the club and compliment me on what was going on and what the scene was.
2: I went to the club twice.
3: Yeah, we we really developed a scene. We broadened the scene. We included a lot of different groups in in the scene. Um, and then we, you know, all of a sudden there was a reputation going on. We sort of got, we. there was a little, uh, I think, bounce like in the 80s where jazz started coming back in and people were listening to like Wynton Marcellus and just identifying that, oh, this might be something to listen to. And then suddenly it, uh, people were telling me like, wow, I, half the time I look at who you're presenting and I don't even know who they are, but all I know is is that the music there is great. And so it's a new experience for me, even if I don't know exactly what I'm coming into or I've ever heard it before. And so that just sort of snowballed, you know. So
0: I'd be interested to know whether from your point of view as a club owner, whether the ambiance of the venue is important. Uh, whether food matters, whether a liquor license, a full liquor license, or a beer-only license matters, uh, because these are all issues really pressing here in Northampton now. So mm-hmm. anything that you can tell us that your experience has taught you, I'd really like to hear about.
3: Yeah, um, well, it, it the liquor license is important because it's a source of revenue, although one of the issues that we had with jazz is is that people come in, they don't drink. And when you own a, a bar, you're almost looking for people to overdrink. And, and, you know, because so you can make some serious money for the evening. and For the criminal lawyers in yes, the area. And, <laughs> but there's that fine line where, well, you can't just get everybody drunk and then send them out on the street because you're liable. You know, if they get picked well, up. Well, there, there's or,
0: all the safe serving stuff that's, that's been. Yes. You know, uh, yeah. and, and I think that's important. But what I'd like to know is what is it that financially makes makes it possible to to be to sustain a club, a, a venue like this? I mean, I, I look at the Iron Horse, which I was had gone to for many, many years and. uh the paper menus never seemed to be, <laughs> be reproduced. Um, the food was mediocre, at, and that's generous. Um, were, the seats were uncomfortable. Uh, everyone was crowded together. Um, everything you can say about it, in some ways, is is, is saying, well, this place is just not a, a venue that people want to go to. And everyone, everyone, lots of people wanted to go all the time because there was something about the place. Yes. And I'm wondering, just just, yeah. I know, I know, we need to take a break in a moment, but help us out, help us understand. How do you create that?
3: That, it, yeah, it it it's almost magical. You you try to 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 attract people. And then suddenly what we found is, is we just had the most diverse crowd that you could have, where it wasn't, it, you would think Cambridge would be, uh, you know, pretty hip and liberal and all that stuff. But um, a lot of those venues are, are very, uh, you know, they're limited and, and who, who they want in their neighborhood. So that's part of the issue. So we, we had a battle in many ways with that, with some of the locals in the neighborhood who were not interested in seeing uh, African Americans come in or gays, or uh, you know, and so we started opening that up and we actually had women saying that this was one of the safest places for women as a bar, you know. So we took that serious. It's really
2: great. Glenn Siegel has brought... Uh, we're blessed with, with having a uh, former nightclub owner, Dennis Steiner. And Glenn is going to also ask Dennis about his incredible skills as a videographer. We're going to be right back after these messages. Well, okay with my baby. She's got great big feet. Lonely and
5: lanky. Ain't nothing to eat,
9: but I love...
6: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman program, intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP.
8: what's cooking at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman
0: ah summer in new england and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries basil and tomatoes an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables in the co-op meat department local chicken from reed farm house-made brats sausage lots of grilling ideas and in the co-op cheese department get
14: fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad
8: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
14: Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero
16: in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience in a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton.
8: Learn Spanish. Learn French. Learn Italian or German. Learn a language with the International Language Institute. Beginner, Intermediate, and Advanced Conversation classes. Speaking the language with others who are learning. ILI is a PDP provider for the state of Massachusetts. Plus, earn continuing education units. Learn Spanish, French, German, Italian. A six-week summer class meets twice a week starting July 18th. Sign up online. One of the world's top language schools is right here. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton
6: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP
2: We're having a very fascinating conversation. Uh, Glenn Siegel has brought us videographer and former nightclub owner Dennis Steiner.
7: Yes, so Dennis, uh, we only have a few minutes left, so I wanted to get uh, a little bit into your, your documentation skills. You've been running the uh, Archive Project uh, for many years in the Valley. Tell us what that is and what's your motivation for doing this work. Uh,
3: well, the, the Archive Project is was just, uh, insp- I, I was inspired by hearing you, your presentation of music and fascinated by how these people that you're presenting may not be well known or may not ever be well known, but they should be documented because the music is phenomenal. You know, it's, 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 it's some of the best music I've ever heard. A lot of the people that I booked at the 1369 are people you booked that I would hear. And so I was always very impressed that in a big institution like the University of Massachusetts, you were presenting this music because in my little club, these kinds of bands were really hard to get over. This is where we got into it with the staff and had to keep everybody quiet, which was almost impossible. So that, that kind of inspired me, and I started getting into video, and I just saw it as an entry point into the music so that I could now learn how to shoot it and, and, and edit it.
7: Mm-hmm. And so you got you started at Amherst Media? Is that where you developed your I, skills? I did.
3: I went there. I joined. I got, I got trained. And then I practiced, and I had a few friends who were already doing video editing, and I got that, mm-hmm. and I just kept working it and working it, and then I connected with you, and in doing so, then it gave me an opportunity to have all of these performances that I could work on. -hmm, you know
7: great. And um, what are your plans for the material? I mean, we have, at this point yeah. when did you start? How many years of well, uh, concerts, two thousand five. Right? In about thirty
2: seconds, okay. <laughs> what are your plans?
3: Uh, well, uh, at this point, I haven't made any plans really. I just have all these documents sitting around, so I guess I'm going to have a talk with Glenn <laughs> 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 and see yeah. what kind of plan we can come up with. So. Yeah.
7: well, some of the material is actually at the Du Bois Library in their special collections, but they don't have everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one sort of future possible
3: website maybe you know i have to yet
2: another project for the amazing glenn siegel and the longtime nightclub owner dennis steiner the videographer who's chronicling uh, our rich tradition of music in this region i thank you both both for being with us and listeners, thank you so much for joining us on talk to talk on behalf of myself and bill newman remember walk the
6: walk and talk the talk you're listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg
8: did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence you can say something we all can say something together we can do so much say something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at safe passage join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org.
11: Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael skillcorn Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at GrowFoodNorthampton.com. E
14: W H M P